0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. This week's episode is brought to you by our friends at PNW Components. I got to sit down with Aaron Kirshen, one of the co-founders of PNW, a couple episodes ago, and it was great to learn the backstory of the company. I've always been impressed as a customer from way back when, as to their customer service, and I've been even more impressed by their products. I spoke a little bit more about the Coast handlebar I've been riding a few episodes ago, but I wanted to add on the Coast dropper post, the suspended version. That's right. Not only am I in the dropper camp, but I'm riding a suspended post. And I've been really excited about how it's been performing. I've had a bit of a bad back. And while I keep the pressure quite high because I don't want a lot of movement in it, when it does move, I realize that I've probably taken a pretty substantial hit on the back of my bike and this is really saving my body. I'm a big advocate of configuring your bike to support you for longer and longer journeys. And I think taking the edge off really falls into that camp. So I've been super jazzed by the Coast Dropper suspended post. So head on over to pnwcomponents.com and check out the product line that they're offering and see if anything they're offering helps you get where you need to go. With your current bike setup, gravel ride listeners can use the code the gravel ride for fifteen percent off their order. So, guys, I need you to click in and grab those handlebars because we're on for an awesome ride today. We've got Jan Heine from Rene Air Cycles coming to talk to us about tires. I don't think there's a single episode I've recorded that I've learned more than the, in this conversation with Jan. It all kicked off in episode four of In the Dirt where we discussed an article – Jan had posted on the Rene Ars website blog entitled, Why 700C Wheels Don't Roll Faster. Randall and I both had our own takes on the article, but suffice it to say, it was extremely thought provoking. I got a ton of emails and a ton of comments on Facebook about our conclusions, and it was a natural place for me to go to talk to Jan and say, Hey, why don't you come on the podcast and talk us through? all the different things that went into that blog post and all the different things you've kind of accumulated in terms of tire knowledge over the last decade. We touch on rim sizes, we talk about tire casings, we talk about tire tread patterns, and we talk about tire inflation. I'm going to warn you, I think this is one of those episodes that you might need to listen to more than once in order to take it all in. I know for me, tires have been this journey of understanding and nailing down my tire pressure numbers has been something I've played around a ton with to try to get the personality of the bike that I'm looking for. As Jan concludes the conversation, he highlights something I believe as well, that The tire and wheel combination is a very unique and important area of any gravel rig, and it can dramatically change the performance, personality, and characteristics of your ride. So it's something don't be afraid to play around with. Try things that are radically different. Try higher and lower tire pressures to figure out what the sweet spot is. Well, that's probably enough preamble. Let's dive right into this week's episode. Welcome Jan to the show.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: I'm excited to talk to you today. I'd love to start off by just getting a little bit about your background as a cyclist before we jump into learning a little bit more about your company.
1: Gee. Um, yeah, I've been cycling all my life pretty much. Um I grew up in Germany and there were I I lived on a very popular route for, for racers to train. So every weekend there were these groups of five, six, seven people on the beautiful bikes, you know, flying by the house. And it just seemed so, so alluring. So I got my own racing bike and started racing, but I also always was thinking about what was sort of behind the horizon. I always wanted to explore further. So back in Germany, I rode to visit friends all over Germany on weekends, sort of taking off, uh, you know, after, after classes in college and, um, riding all day and, um, you know, exploring new places and uh, all that. So from that, it became, yeah, the the long distances were just so appealing to see how far you could go and what you could see.
0: Amazing. And that eventually transitioned to you becoming a professional in the bike industry. How did that come about? And Renee Ars was not your first company. I know the brand predates all of us.
1: Yeah. So, um what happened was here in um uh, in in washington we um <clears throat> we have uh, only limited amount of roads because it's the mountains and in the valleys we we have some really really beautiful roads but there is more and more traffic and we started wondering about these lines on the map that we had seen that um nobody was ever riding on and we found all these gravel roads and we started exploring them. And part of it was the bikes that we had back then were not so useful for that. I uh, started out with a touring bike with specialized tri-cross, knobby tires. 35 millimeters seemed huge at the time when we were racing on 19s on the road. But it wasn't quite the same feeling as riding on the road. The bike didn't perform the same. The tires didn't perform the same. It didn't have that feeling of almost effortless, you know, gliding along that, that I enjoyed so much. So there were a few false starts. And we finally realized that we needed basically a racing bike for gravel and uh, not a touring bike, not a mountain bike. And we needed racing tires for gravel. And there was a confluence through the interest in long-distance cycling and randonneuring. I had um, done uh, Paris, brest Paris, a uh, famous ride in France, uh, one of the oldest bike races that became an amateur event at uh, 750 miles and um, it has a long history and all the old riders and racers and randomers kept telling me about these wonderful handmade tires that they had in the 1940s that rolled so fast and there were you know 35 or even 42 millimeters wide and and nothing like that existed anymore and what a shame so we started looking into making stuff like that again first we imported some very obscure tires from japan called Mitsubishi trim lines that um were a very good start um but we realized they could be improved and we started testing different tires figured out what makes the tire fast realized that high pressures weren't necessary to roll fast this was at a time when we all rode at like 125 psi on our 20 millimeter tires and um we suddenly realized that that actually was slower than 80 PSI and that 20 millimeters was slower than 25. And that sort of set in motion a whole revolution. We published the findings. We talked to some guys who were advising professional teams. And then suddenly you saw Servallo and others experimenting with wider tires They went from 23 to 25 pressures went lower that was on the roadside, but we really wanted to do the gravel. And so, you know, 25 didn't do it back then. Even the, we called gravel grinders were 28 millimeter tires, which is, we laugh about it now that we were riding or other people were riding, you know, 80 PSI, 20, 28 millimeter tires on gravel. And um, so we were, you know, we looked into the 42, we looked into the smaller wheel, 650B and all that. And all those roads sort of led to to the old French bikes because back then in the mountains in the Alps, in France, um, of course, most roads were gravel. So they didn't think of gravel riding. They were just riding. And if you wanted to go up the, the Galibier or something like that, you went on gravel roads. And so the bikes for that existed, and they were quite sophisticated because, the, how to say, the technology hasn't changed that much apart from you know carbon and titanium. But otherwise, human bodies sort of are still the same now as they were 50 or 80 years ago. Um, and the airplane technology was really well developed by the 1930s and filtered pretty quickly down to bicycles. Like, uh, and that's where Rene Harris company, who was an airplane, uh, builder who worked on prototype aircraft, um, including the first plane to fly across the Atlantic from Paris to New York, which was a few years after Charles Lindbergh, but it was against the wind. So it was a lot harder. They took 36 hours of nonstop flying. And anyway the Renaer started making bikes because uh, he was an avid cyclist and um, the bikes were sort of the gravel bikes that we needed with the big tires, very lightweight, basically racing bikes for gravel roads, racing bikes with fenders and racks for bringing a few things, lights for riding at night, but still high performance bikes, not touring bikes. And that sort of opened our eyes of what was possible.
0: That's an amazing origin story. Can I ask you to describe sort of rendaneering as an aspect of the sport? Because I think some of my listeners, imagine many of them, aren't familiar with what that term actually refers to.
1: Well, originally it's a French term that basically just means hiking. Um, And uh, it was transferred to bicycles as going long distances on the bike. um, It's a relatively you know, high pace and uh, light load, so not carrying a tent and, you know, your kitchen sink, but um, carrying a small bag and um, yeah, pushing the boundaries of where you could go. There was uh, already in the 1890s uh, magazine editor, Villeux put it out of challenge of 40 hours. How far can you get in 40 hours? And all these readers wrote in and said, I went to the top of Mont Ventoux from Lyon and back and all kinds of adventures. So it's sort of took off from there
0: it's really interesting to me looking at it because i clearly you know it's the same um spirit as what we associate with gravel riding today and and in many ways even more so with these multi-day super long events that randonneurs tend towards
1: yeah i mean it's really you know now we have a lot of that on gravel tour divides road mountain race things like that are are sort of going back to the roots of cycling, of, you know, exploring places that, that we usually don't go and so on. So, and, you know, became a little more established. They organized these events 200, 300, 400, 600, and 1,200 kilometers. They called vervets, which means basically you get a diploma you have pass the test or something. And how it works is uh, you check in at certain points uh, to show that you've completed the whole course. You get your card stamped. And um, often it's at convenience stores. So you just, you know, get a receipt or something. And at the end, you can get the medal. Um, so that's the institutional part of the sport. And it's it's also great fun. But more often, we just head out in the mountains because we want to see where we can go once we set ourselves a challenge of going... From Seattle to the highest road on Mount St. Helens, then to the highest road on Mount Rainier and back in 24 hours. So um, that was a really fun project. Uh, we finished with 12 minutes to spare and uh, one of the greatest memories of, of, of riding bikes in the Cascade.
0: That's amazing. I think there's a lot of stories out there for people who are interested in understanding Randonneering a little bit more. It's, it seems like an amazing side of the sport and just a unique way of challenging yourself that doesn't involve necessarily pinning a number on. It, it's from listening to you. It seems like it's really about the adventure and setting a challenge to explore what your world around you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the one thing that I really enjoy about random learning is it's much more about teamwork because times are recorded, but it's not, there's no winner. So first of all, you're just the fastest if you're the fastest, but you aren't any better than the others. But secondly, if a group of five people comes in together, the times are only reported to the minute. So it, there's no sprint. Yeah. You know, when I was racing, it was always you were in a breakaway with three other guys and you are working well together. And it's sort of this feeling of, of almost love, like, you know, everybody's doing their part. You're this well oiled machine of a of a, you know, pace line rotating. And then suddenly there's a sign that says one kilometer and you turn into enemies. You need to think about how can I outsmart the other guys? How can I outsprint them? And deep down, I was always feeling like, well, the other guys deserve to win just as much as I do. But that's not how you win races. So randonneuring sort of allows that, where you all cross the finish line together and you, you now you're like belated and you did it. Yeah. And, and not that's... one of the four said, I won, and the other three say, oh, shoot, you know, I should have started my sprint a little sooner or put a little more into it or not taking as many pulls earlier or stuff like that. You know, there' no regrets.
0: Yeah. And I imagine, you know, that's the way I know I feel in the middle of a pack of a, a gravel race. I'm I'm happy to have completed the event. And I really love that whether it's the first person in line or the last person at the end of the race, we all had that similar experience and we can enjoy ourselves talking about the roads we just conquered and the trails we just conquered.
1: I think that's really why gravel racing has taken off so much. I mean, gravel itself, I find fascinating because the bike has a little more freedom to move around. So you you can play with the bike a little more versus on the road where if you break traction, usually you go down. So it's it's more prescriptive on the road. Whereas on gravel, if you go too fast, you get a big slide and you say, whoa, I should go a little slower next time. Um and uh, But I think the main thing is the the competition exists, but it's much more friendly. It's much more, you know, nobody says, well, I came 89th, so I'm better than you because you came only 90th.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my brief foray into the sport of triathlon, I, I distinctly remember sort of people wanting to race me for 400th place at Ironman or not even that. I was probably way back <laughs> in the pack. But you know what I mean? It's just like we, I don't in a gravel race, I don't look at the guy next to me on a climb and think. Oh, I need to beat you up this climb. I kind of look at him or her and say to myself, we're in a beautiful place. We're exploring, we're having an adventure and much like mountain biking, when you have those skid out moments in a gravel event and your heart races, it's just fun. It's part of the overall experience of kind of pushing the bike and your body to its limits.
1: Absolutely.
0: So let's talk a little bit about tires for the listener. You know, tire creating a tire is a difficult and expensive process can you just give us the high notes because i know between like creating a mold and selecting the rubber compound there's a lot of uh, design decisions that go into it and expense to get to the tires we see in the market today
1: yeah i mean there definitely is i think um the biggest revolution was realizing that high pressures are necessary because before you had a a big trade-off, and this is more now just about the, about the, the basics of tires, uh, where you could either make a wide tire that was supple and, you know, um, how to say, like, like a racing tire, but it had to have really low pressures because as the tire gets wider, the, um, the casing gets a lot more stressed. So you could have narrow high-pressure tires. You could have wide tires that either had low pressure or had to be really stiff to withstand the high pressure. Since we all thought that low pressures were slow and high pressures were fast, there was really no way of making a high-performance wide tire because you know, with a narrow tire, it's easy. You make a really supple tire like a handmade tubular, and you can still inflate it to 130 PSI because it is so narrow, the forces are so small. But with the wide tire, you had the choice of either the touring kind of tire that was reinforced everywhere, and you could run that at, say, 100 PSI, or you could make a hypothetical racing tire in a 42-millimeter width, but it would only take 60 PSI or something like that. And then we said, well, 60 PSI, that's going to be so slow and sluggish. So nobody even tried. I think the the revolution came when we realized that the higher pressures make the bike vibrate faster. So we it feels faster to a lot of riders because... Um, you know, vibration frequency either changes because of the tire pressure or because of your speed. If you're going twice the speed, your bike hits all these little pebbles on the road twice as quickly, and so the vibration has also doubled. So there's a sort of placebo effect. You pump up your tires harder, and it feels faster, but it actually isn't. Um, We measured that on real roads with a real rider, power meters, roll downs, all kinds of different uh, methods to make sure that... um, that our results really weren't just flukes um statistical analysis all that stuff i won't go into that too much we realized that it's really not true you can let out as much air as you want almost until the tire becomes so wobbly that it becomes almost unrideable and only roughly at that point it does get slow i mean clearly a flat tire is really slow but um there's no need for 130 psi even with a racing tire and you know now we all say well of course we know that but that was quite revolutionary, what 15 years ago or so, and so that's when we realized those tires that I mentioned earlier that the old French guys were talking about. Really, it works. You make a racing tire that's 42 millimeters wide, you only inflate it to 40 or 50 psi, and you roll as fast as you do on a 23 millimeter racing tire. Yeah,
0: it's definitely one. It's definitely one of those things. I tell you time and time again i speak to athletes who are coming from the roadside of the world and they are absolutely gobsmacked when i tell them you know i'm running on my 650b 47s you know under 30 psi they they absolutely cannot believe it
1: yeah and you know what's happening is actually physically it's quite interesting and easy to understand um, there's two ways the tire causes resistance. One is the tire itself flexes. It's sort of like when you squeeze a tennis ball, how your hand gets tired because, you know, at the bottom, of course, the tire deforms and the more it deforms, the more energy it absorbs, but also the harder it is, the more energy it absorbs. You know, squishing a marshmallow doesn't take much force. Squishing a tennis ball is much harder because tennis balls is sort of hard. Um, And from that perspective, it would make sense to run higher pressures because less, deformation means less energy absorption. You do want, however, the tire that's as as supple as possible because, again, for the same deformation, you want to use as little energy as possible. What people had overlooked in the past was that there's another way of absorbing energy and that is what we call the suspension losses. Well, not we, what is called the suspension losses. It was the U.S. Army that figured this out way back in the 60s when they tested tank seats for some really lightweight, probably top-secret vehicles and they found that if the seat vibrated too much the rider's body absorbed a lot of energy it's sort of like you drop a bean bag on the ground and it doesn't bounce up because all the energy of the of the drop has been absorbed by friction between the little beans inside and the human body is very good at absorbing energy too so if your bike vibrates you slow down just because energy is lost. Um, it's sort of the discomfort that you feel. You can even, if you're riding really rough roads, you can feel how your body gets warm. Um, so it's a huge amount of energy lost. The U.S. Army found 2,000 watts. Now, you and I know there's no professional sprinter who can put out 2,000 watts. So in theory, you could absorb all your pedaling energy on, um, through, through those suspension losses. And you can feel that if you go from a smooth road to a rough road, how much you slow down even though you know it's still a flat road, there there's no more wind resistance. The the tire deforms a little more, but most of that goes into the suspension losses. And so of course, the less the bike vibrates, the less suspension losses you have, which means you're gaining again what you lost because the tire deformed more with the lower pressures. So With high pressures, the tire stays cold. There's no energy loss in the tire, but your body gets warm. You're uncomfortable. You lose all the energy there. With low pressures, you don't lose any energy in in your body. You lose a little more in the tire. But the net result is the same. So, you know, if I inflate my tires to the max pressure or to something much more reasonable, has really no bearing on how fast the tire rolls on a smooth road.
0: It's such an interesting equation, and it comes up so often in gravel cycling, I find, because you definitely have to balance what your body is receiving as an input um, along with the efficiency of the bicycle that you're on. So,
1: Yeah, and what's interesting on gravel is that actually the equation turns in favor of the low pressures because there's so much vibration that... um Running lower pressures is just simply more efficient. Yeah, I think that. What we did is we ran on the rumble strips that you have on the sides of highways because gravel is sort of not very uniform. And for, for scientific experiment, you want something that's more replicable. So we rode on the smooth pavement next to the rumble strip on the brand new road. And then we rode over the rumble strip with a power meter. And it was quite interesting, first of all, of course, how much harder I I was the experimenter because everybody else refused to ride 20 miles on rumble strips. Um, (laughs) And I can tell you it beats you up, Um, especially back then because we were on 28 millimeter tires, but um, on the rumble strips, lower pressure was so much faster as you can imagine. I mean, so, you know, running a, a 42 millimeter tire at 30 PSI versus 60 PSI on the rumble strips, the 60 PSI was way, way slower.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. I also noted on your site, which I think is unique for a tire manufacturer, that you've got four different casing options. Can you talk through kind of what those translate to for the rider?
1: Yeah, I mean, really, what our testing found, and I guess what pro racers have known forever, is the only thing that really matters in making a tire fast is the casing, how much energy it absorbs. You know, the marshmallow versus the tennis ball versus. I don't know what, maybe even something even harder. Um, And so um, it's always, of course, a trade-off. You can make a super, super fast casing, but it's very, very fragile because it's paper thin. It doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, withstand the rigors of real roads. And it also gets quite expensive. You know, we talked about TPI, the finer the threads are. The the more supple the casing gets, the faster it gets. Also, the easier it becomes to cut, unfortunately, because, you know, a fine thread, you can cut one by one. If you have a thicker thread, it resists better. So um, really, the logical way of thinking about tires is in casings. The the tread pattern, especially on gravel, it doesn't make that big of a difference because you're sliding. Rocks are sliding on rocks anyway. You're just pushing stuff around. So it's not really how much traction you have on the top layer of gravel. It's more... How much the rocks have amongst each other, so what you really hang on here, my microphone <laughs> became untucked. Here we go. What you really want in a in uh, to think about in your tire is which casing do you want to run, and in our case, we have four one is the extra light, which is sort of the, the top end racing casing that um is actually not as fragile as a lot of people think because one of the advantages with the wide tires we have is that they run at such low pressures, they become much harder to cut, um, as you can imagine. I mean, you have a tire at 120 PSI, you ride over something, the only place it has to go is into the tire and the tire can't deform around it. Whereas if you ride over you know, glass with a, with a fat bike at 5 PSI, nothing's going to cut that tire at five PSI except a really big nail or something because the tire just deforms around, around the, the obstacle. So, you know, even with a 48 millimeter tire at, uh, say 25 PSI, you have a lot fewer flats than you would with the narrow tire, even with the same casing, the same about the sidewall cuts. Again, if the sidewall can, can uh, deflect rather than get cut, you know, it's much less fragile. Um, but still, you know, you are in a gravel race, you're in a peloton, you don't see where you're going. I wouldn't ride the extra light casing. Okay. So for that, we also have a standard casing, which is mostly a more economical option. The threads are a little wider, thicker. It's a little stronger. Of course, it's a little slower. It's a little less comfortable. Um, but that's sort of the, the, what we call the standard casing. That's the one we started out with before we really pushed the envelope with the extra light. We have a reinforced casing, which uses the fine threads of the extra light, but with a puncture and cut-proof layer underneath both the sidewalls and the uh, tread. So that's sort of our go-to gravel racing tire, because it's just a lot more puncture and cut-resistant. And then we have the Endurance Plus, which is for Head King and Dirty Canada, you know, where um, basically just the rocks are really rough the speeds are really high it's dusty people don't see where they're going they just hit stuff right and left and it's sort of yeah i yeah. don't want to say carnage but but you know that's uh that's sort of uh even stronger tire with a stronger puncture resistant layer it's still remarkably fast because we use very high-end materials but it's uh it's definitely pushing towards toward the durability it's the tire. I, I would say outside the downhill mountain bike world, it's one of the strongest tires you can find.
0: Yeah, I think when anybody talks about the dirty cans, of course, they always talk about sidewall cuts as being the you know, number one risk factor.
1: Exactly. And, you know, especially in the race, I mean, if I'm randonoring, for example, where my absolute time is the goal, if I have a tire that saves me an hour over, say, a 200-mile ride, and I have one flat. I can fix that in less than an hour. That's right. sort of my trade-off. Right. But if I'm in a race and I'm in the front group, if I'm 10 seconds back, I'm already dropped. I'm never going to see those guys again. And so the calculation becomes quite different. It's sort of you know game theory sort of analysis where in racing, the, how to say, the risk of, of getting dropped is, is your main concern and not your absolute time.
0: Yeah, and I think that calculation is something that a lot of athletes tend to make some errors in, in thinking that they are in the front end of the race, meaning they are in the (laughs) Ted King group versus, you know, being realistic and saying like, where, where am I going to better serve myself going back to our taking care of your body part of the equation? You're much better to take care of your body and go faster than set up a really, you know, hard bike and hard tire setup that's not going to serve your body well.
1: Yeah. and The funny thing is it's not faster either. You know, the, the right. idea from road racing in the old days, especially was if I can suffer, I'll be faster because I run narrower tires, I run higher pressures and so on. And you've seen pro racing, you know, now the Tour de France is going on. You don't see anybody on 20 millimeter tires anymore. Even 23s don't exist anymore. Um, it's all 25. Some people run 28. Nobody's at 130 PSI anymore because what we found is because of those vibration losses, the suspension losses, suffering doesn't make you faster actually comfort is faster because if you're not vibrating you are not losing energy it's sort of the same as you look at the off-road racing truck for the baja uh, race or something they have huge tires they have suspension and it's not because they want to be comfortable for the driver it's they want to get the speed you know um and it's the same thing for us so you know people always say isn't this too much tire for that event and really that Question doesn't exist. You are never going to be faster on the 28 than on the 35, uh, even on rough pavement, but much less on gravel. And the 42 is going to be faster than the 35, and the 48 will be even faster. Yeah. The only problem you're, go
0: ahead. I was going to say, in interviewing Ted King, I think it was last year, maybe even the year before, he had made a comment saying, you know, he's never regretted going wider on his tire.
1: No, although it took some convincing him when we came out with with wide tires.
0: I can only imagine. um,
1: Yeah, because, you know, I mean, there is, of course, one other equation, and that is, as a racer, if you are the strongest racer and you have the same equipment as everybody else, you're going to win. And so, as long as you feel that you're stronger than the other guys, using different equipment from the other guys carries a risk, because we sometimes don't know everything. Like, you know, the current science says but the current science 10 years ago said, or 15 years ago said, that I should run 20 millimeter tires at 130 PSI. And I can tell you those things are way slower than 25. I mean, it's like completely easy to measure. We don't have to do a huge amount of, 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 of measuring. And so if, but if everybody's on the 20s at 130 PSI, the stronger guy wins. And every racer, of course, at the top feels they're stronger. Otherwise they wouldn't show up at the start line. So it's very rare, you know, the fake famous Greg LeMond error bar story where he was so far behind, he had nothing to lose. And, you know, the only hope of winning was to get some sort of equipment advantage. But that's extremely rare. Usually, you know, you don't want to make a mistake. And so if you do what everybody else does, it's sort of the safe thing to do and it makes perfect sense for a racer. Yeah.
0: And that's an interesting, that's an interesting comment. And I think it's at the conclusion of your article, why 700 C's don't roll faster that, you know, Ted (laughs) has been exploring and using 650 B in a lot of his adventure ridings, but he's still racing on 700 C. And it sounded like at the end of that article, and you, you had just said this, that, you know, it's the safe choice for him.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's just like, how to say, science always changes. So, um, how to say, it's sort of like even in medical science, you don't take medication unless you are, you're sick, you know, because then you say, well, what do I have to lose? So Greg Lamont or even a guy like me, you know, I need the, every advantage I can get. So I'm gonna, you know, run the wider tires and the the lighter casing and all those things, because, I mean, I'm not going to stay with Ted King. I can tell you that. But at least, you know, I can, I can maybe stay with a group that I otherwise couldn't stay with. Um, but if you're the guy who wins anyway, by gosh, you're not going to run any risks.
0: Yeah. So th- one of the things that is a constant source of debate around the gravel community is obviously 700 versus 650B. And I don't think mm. of it so much as a, a debate. It's more around what tire width your bike can accommodate. Right. So as as you yeah. mentioned in the article. I think, go ahead.
1: I think that's actually the biggest constraint with tires is not that wider is slower. It's that at some point you get to a point where you can't build a performance bike anymore. Right. And you know, you look at a mountain bike, a mountain bike is slower than a gravel bike because it's got wider cranks, because there's all kinds of constraints. And then you look at a fast bike that's really slow. And the main reason it's slow is just you can't pedal it efficiently because the cranks are too wide and it's all about biomechanics. And so um, from that perspective, yeah, the real problem is what can we fit into a bike and still make it be a racing bike?
0: Right. Yeah, I think I'm guilty for sort of leaning into the 650 versus 700. But as I analyze my thoughts, it's really about the width of the tire, more so than yeah. I care one way or the other about 700C or 650B. Because as you've, you've said in the article, like there, it's very small differences in size at the end of the day. Particularly, it's often made up by the, the tire volume itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely your 650 by 48 has the same outer diameter as a 700 by 28. So, um, you know, it's not... And if, if bigger tires really roll better, then you should put the biggest tires or bigger wheels, you should put the biggest tires on because, you know, you can gain yet another few millimeters. But it's always, it was a a, a great uh, bicycle thinker and scientist, Jim Papadopoulos, who said, cyclists are always very good at identifying potentially important variables and then arguing over meaningless differences. (laughs) You know, just like we talk about, you know, bottom bracket height, five millimeters lower makes the bike handle better. And then you look at where your center of gravity is. It's about three feet off the ground. And, you know, lowering that by five millimeters, if you can feel that, I want to see it, you know. And so I think we, we have a tendency, clearly, I mean, it makes sense if you run a 12-inch wheel or something like that. It's going to be slower, no doubt about it. But like you're saying, between 650B and 700C, the difference is small. And the other thing people don't, think about either is that the tire isn't round, it's flat at the bottom, you know. Um, so most of the vibration gets absorbed in the tire. The bike doesn't have to get lifted over all these little bumps. Like, you know, like an old carriage did. And the old carriages, when you look at the stagecoach from the old west, or so, they had huge wheels. Of course, the roads were really rough, but uh, the main reason is that if you need to lift the whole the whole vehicle, you know, the whole bike, the whole carriage, over those bumps, bigger wheels do work better. But uh, once you have air in your tires, you're sort of, how to say, it's almost like a caterpillar track where the bottom is flat.
0: Right. Yeah, it's interesting. And you've got some great hand-drawn, they look, uh, diagrams in that article on your blog. So I encourage listeners to go over to the site, and I can link to it in our, our show notes. Jan, I wanted to go back yeah. to a comment you made about the tread patterns Because I've been exploring, it seems like, less and less tread on my gravel tires, even though I tend to ride pretty aggressive terrain here in Marin County. Can you go back to your comment about tread patterns and how you guys think about it?
1: Yeah. I mean, we started out with road tires because that's all we had. And, um, you know, we, we ran some lobbies and so on and really found that there was very little difference on gravel because... As I said, uh, what happens is you're pushing around gravel when you're sliding. You're not, you know, on the road, what happens is the asphalt doesn't move. Your tire slips on the asphalt. So clearly, the more grip you can get between asphalt and tire, the less likely you're going to slip. But on gravel, that's not really your problem. You're sort of the tires digging into the ground anyway, and then just pushes the gravel because usually the gravel is, it's loose and, you know, easy to, to move. So, you know, that's, that's what's happening. And so tire thread can't really help you there because you have rocks sliding on rocks and uh, the tire doesn't even touch the parts that, that are sliding.
0: So are your, are you, it looks like your knob pattern is quite similar between like a juniper ridge and a pumpkin ridge. So you've got that yeah. in one category and then you essentially have a, a slick tire as the other category of, of tire that you offer,
1: yeah. Well, basically, what we found is um, there's two use the two scenarios. One is where you can make a print footprint in the in the soil. Let's say it's loose loose soil, usually mud. I mean, I'm coming from a cyclocross background, and there, of course, you need tread because um, because the tire just slips on the on the top layer of mud, and the deeper you can dig in the mud the the better the 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 more traction you get and uh so basically i would say the 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 simple rule is if you can see your tire tracks um really making making little holes in the ground then then tread does make a difference uh unless it's really loose sand where really again you're just pushing around sand it's you know, there's, there's not much that helps. And when you look at the dune buggy, it doesn't have a very aggressive tread. It just has the biggest tires that can fit on a, on the a Volkswagen Beetle chassis or whatever they're using these days. Right. Um, so, yeah. Basically, there's two ways of thinking about, about our tire treads. One is it's basically a road tire, which is optimized for asphalt. And you don't want a real slick tire for the asphalt because there needs to be a little bit of... Um, of linking between the road surface and the tire. That's also why roads are never totally smooth. When you talk to road builders, they say, yeah, we could make perfectly smooth asphalt, but the braking distances would just be too great. So they they always have some, some roughness built in. And the tire that can uh, interlock with that roughness gives you a lot more traction, especially in the wet. I mean, when you think about it, um, the coefficient of friction is about half when the road is wet. But you and I know that we can go faster than half the speed on a wet road than a dry road, unless it's oily or something. But, uh, and that's because there is that interlocking between road and tire. And you always get some of it because the rubber is, um, is, uh, is of course, flexible. But if you have little ribs like traditional racing tires had, uh, you get more of it. And I think the traditional racing tires had it because the rubber compounds way back were not very good. And especially in the wet, they, they didn't grip. So they needed to get every help they ca- could, and they got these these tread patterns. But even with today's rubber compounds, which are much better, it's surprising how much more grip you get with a really, really good tread on asphalt in the wet, especially. Now, on gravel, I would say on loose gravel, it doesn't matter. You can ride anything because you're pushing around rocks and gravel and, and that's it. It's a little different on, on dirt. And so it depends also what your gravel looks like. I think your gravel and my gravel look somewhat similar. We're here in Seattle in the Cascades. You're in Marin County. It's pretty loose stuff. I would say tire tread doesn't help you a lot in most cases, unless it gets muddy or snowy or something. I think um, going east, like Vermont and so, it's a little different. There, it's more more soil and dirt on those roads, and there you can get better traction with the knobby. And so we developed the knobby at first for cyclocross, but you know also um, for 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 those conditions. And in cyclocross, what was always frustrating to me is I run these wonderful, you know, handmade tubular knobbies with these tiny knobs that are spread out really widely, and on mud, it's amazing how well they grip. But each cyclocross race has a little bit of pavement, and I'm just like, the knobs are folding over, and I can't really pedal, and I'm just waiting until I get back on the mud so I can put down power again. I thought, this is ridiculous. I should make up speed on the the pavement. And so the question we had was, can you make a knobby that works well on pavement and well in the mud. In the past, we've had these sort of center ridge kind of knobby tires that really had too many knobs to work in mud because they, you know, to roll smoothly, they um, put more and more knobs on the tire. But then it clogs up with mud and doesn't clear itself as it rotates. Uh, so you just basically start riding only on mud rather than, than digging into the surface. You have a slick tire that's made, made out of mud um, I'm sure you've seen the photos from, from muddy cross races. I mean, there's some some peanut butter mud that, where you can't do anything anyway, but, you know, sort of that compromise. And so our question was, could we make the knobs so big that they don't squirm on the pavement, but still have enough space in between that they clear themselves and still make them small enough that they dig into the mud? And the answer is yes. Um, it took a lot of experimentation. We took we started with calculations because as you mentioned earlier, the tire molds are very expensive. You can't just make a prototype tire. You basically commit to, to more or less a production run. Um, but anyway, and we found you can, I mean, you can make a knobby tire that, uh, corners really well that, um, rides almost like a slick tire on the road. And, um, that still grips extremely well in the mud and snow and so on. So that's the second tire we offer, which is basically, you know, uh, a mud tire that works really well on the road versus the other tire. That's a road tire that works really well on gravel and gravel is sort of the intersection where I would say you can run either. I mean, Ted King ran the, the lobbies in dirty Kansas in, um, in uh, mid South, he ran the slicks and, you know, he says there's, there's not much in between, uh, in between them on, on those courses.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting and, and sort of mind-blowing the first time you ride a slick tire off-road, and it's surprising how well they do perform.
1: Yeah, I mean, realistically, you look at, you know, you drive your car on a gravel road, you don't have huge knobs sticking out of those tires either. It's, it's not, how to say, it's not necessary. Yeah. Well, like a lot of the things. Unless it's muddy. I mean, you know, if you're in snow and you know that in your car too, if you drive on snow, it's super easy to spin the wheels, even though with even though you might have four wheel drive because just they don't grip. And if you have real like rally car snow tires on your car, you know, it's a huge difference. And the same with the bike. I mean, that's where, you know, if, if I expect any snow or mud on the ride, I definitely put the knobbies on even if I have a hundred miles of pavement in between. Right. And that's the beauty of of the tires we were able to develop is that they roll so well on pavement, actually better than a lot of uh, racing slicks in our testing, that you don't have to compromise so much anymore. You can, you know, we did one ride where we traversed the Cascades uh, in January, um, not the super high passes because, you know, 10 feet of snow is not what you want to do, but we went at the foot of Mount St. Helens on roads that are close to cars, so it was really wonderful riding. But uh, we had like 100 miles of what we call transport stage, just road riding to get there because we took the train to the, you know, to the jumping off point, then we rode across the the mountains and took a train back. And really, it wasn't a chore to ride all that pavement on the on the knobby. In fact, we forgot about it in our time, I've ridden that course many times wasn't any slower than it usually would be,
0: right. Interesting. Well, Jan, I appreciate all the time today. It's given a great background to your company and your history. And I love getting the insight into these tires because I think there's a lot of thought that goes into it and it's worth my listeners kind of understanding the different variables that you need to be considering when purchasing a tire.
1: Hey, thanks a lot. And yeah, I mean, definitely, I think the tires are probably the part of your bike that makes the biggest difference in how the bike feels and performs and, We we made those tires because we wanted tires to ride ourselves and that's always been sort of driving our development is, is where and how and what we want to ride. So thanks a lot for having
0: me. Big thanks to Jan for coming on the show. And I hope you learned a ton about tires, tire pressure and tire treads during the conversation. I know I did. There was a lot to that conversation. So don't be afraid to rewind and hit play again and take some notes. I think we can all learn a lot from Jan. And the great news is a lot of the things he said can be applied to your existing wheel set, your existing tires to test and learn and see if some of the things that he's discovered in his riding and testing match with your own personal tests on the road and trail. Big thanks again to this week's sponsor, PNW Components. Do not forget about that discount code, The Gravel Ride, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. And big thanks to everybody who's been visiting buymeacoffee.com slash Ride to check out how you can support the podcast and some of the different membership perks and membership options that we've been adding to that page From time to time, if financially supporting the podcast is not within your means, ratings and reviews and simply sharing the podcast with your friends is incredibly helpful to me and it really puts some wind in my sails. So that's it for this week, my friends. Make sure to hit me up on social media and remember we've got that new Facebook listener forum I'd love for you to join where I'm looking for episode suggestions and questions you might have for us to cover in the dirt. So until next time, I'm signing off, and here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.